0: Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, we are in Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. And as you find your place... There, just thinking of uh, that song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. Uh, that song was written by a man named John Newton, who had become a uh, reformed ex-slave ship captain. And he saw himself as wretched, not deserving of the grace of God. And as we think, even this Palm Sunday, that uh, uh, at least today is recognized as the day that, that Christ uh, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey colt. And we don't know for certain whether it was on the first day or, or the second day of the week as we've talked uh, briefly. in uh, Previously, it is nonetheless a day we recognize that he rode in uh, to Jerusalem on a donkey colt. And we've studied that. I mean, we've been in Luke chapter 18 and 19. And over the last four weeks, we have studied in detail his triumphal entry. I'm not going to go that direction today. We've We've just been right there just a few days ago. So we're going to continue on in Luke chapter 20 and verse 9. This is the parable of the vine growers. All right, the parable of the vine growers. As most of you know, I would normally read the entire parable before we dive into it, but today I'm going to do something a little bit different. Last week as we departed, Jesus had been confronted by a group of Elders and scribes and priests, uh, they're trying to trap him by questioning his authority. And if you remember, uh, they barely escaped the prospect of being stoned. Uh, These religious leaders, they they squeaked out of a a pretty tight spot, either acknowledge that John the Baptist correctly pointed at Jesus as the Messiah, or anger massive crowds by denouncing the baptism of John the Baptist altogether. So there is a lot of tension at this scene as Jesus now turns to instruct this same group of people, priests and scribes, plus their surrounding crowd, through this parable. This is a spiritual lesson in the medium of a story. It's called a parable. And we will see today through the strength which Jesus asserts through this parable. He, he was one bold character, very strong character. And, and verse 9 remains the, the same setting, Luke 20, verse 9, the same setting from last week. They are still in the temple, probably Wednesday of Passion Week, two days away from the cross. And in verse 9 we read that Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers. Now, stop right there. Alright, stop right there. This is not the first time that these priests and elders and scribes heard a parable about a vine grower or in a vineyard. Uh, their ears would have perked up straighter than, than a Doberman's. Alright, they, they're turned on right there. He, they know exactly where Jesus is going. Centuries earlier, the prophet Isaiah also told a parable of a vineyard. That is in Isaiah chapter 5. What is noteworthy for us to to give attention to is how we find the account from Isaiah also recorded in Matthew 21 during this very occasion. Jesus uh, Jesus in Matthew 21 uses Isaiah's vineyard parable uh, to point to his own. So, so basically, what, what this assures us is is that Jesus is providing the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's parable. Okay? Folks, this is why you can never unhitch the Old Testament from the New. It, it is impossible. Not difficult. It is impossible to properly interpret and understand the New Testament apart from the Old. As, as I've always stated, anyone who teaches otherwise, you know, they're either scripturally inept or or perhaps worse, lying. All right, You cannot set aside the Old Testament. All Scripture is God-breathed. The Old Testament richly teaches us about Jesus Christ. Uh, therefore, I'm going to begin today, I'm going to start by reading to you Isaiah's parable of the vineyard before we dive into Jesus' parable. As I read Isaiah chapter 5, the beloved in this parable is the Lord God himself. The beloved's vineyard is the nation of Israel, as we will clearly see in the parable. God planted it, therefore he owns it. And scripture repeatedly assures that God is going to judge it. You know, This parable is very reminiscent of uh, the fig tree that Jesus cursed just a couple days prior. And we studied that before, too. Jesus cursed a fig tree two days ago for its fruitlessness. All right? So here we go. Here we go. You got your seatbelt buckled? This is Isaiah, chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. This assures us that God had prepared his vineyard. He he had prepared and equipped Israel very well. He had done them very well. Verse 2, Isaiah said, Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done with it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah his delightful plant, thus He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Isaiah 2, he was an an incredibly courageous man. Uh, We know that God's judgment came first upon Israel uh, this first time around in the form of of Israel's expulsion from the land. That that happened, uh, their expulsion, you know, four centuries before Christ came. So, when Jesus gives his own parable of the vineyard, uh, those in the crowd who know their Bibles, they know exactly what he's talking about. In his parable, in this one I'm going to read now from Jesus, Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 9, in his parable, the vineyard remains Israel. The vine growers are its spiritual leadership. Uh, God is the man who owns. The vineyard, the slaves that he sends are God's prophets, and the beloved is God's precious son. So Luke writes, and Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him and also treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. You know, Matthew records in his own Account of this that uh, this vineyard owner sent many servants multiple times repeatedly some of them the, the story tells even killed they killed um, Isaiah ended up being one of those that Israel killed then in verse 13 Jesus says the owner of the vineyard said what shall I do I will send my beloved son perhaps they will respect him But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Others. What would be others from Israel? Others are Gentiles. If you're not Israel, you're Gentiles. It says, when they heard it, they said, may it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, what then is it that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. You know that just astonishing material, uh, astonishing material. The parable virtually just tells itself. Uh, Jesus was fearless before these religious leaders, speaking like this to them. The concept of a of a landowner renting a vineyard it, that that was an incredibly common scenario for Jesus' audience. It, it happened all the time in ancient Israel. It was so common, in fact that the symbolism in the parable becomes lost for some of those who are listening, at at least a few who were in Jesus' audience, remember he's surrounded by many, he's at the temple, at least a few thought Jesus was describing a factual story. Okay, So these became outraged at how horrible these vine grower tenants had treated the landowner. In fact, some of those listening even respond. This is recorded in Matthew 21 verse 41 by saying, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. To those, Jesus uh, responds as seen in Luke 20 verse 16. Yes, yes, yes. He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. The priests and the scribes, however, those who understood that Jesus was speaking this parable uh, symbolically against them, they say, may it never be. No way. So what I mean to, to, to say, to fully clarify, is that some who are hearing this, hear it as a real situation. A current day situation. Sharecroppers, they they were supposed to supply some of their produce to the landowner. Everybody knew that. So when the story reveals these corrupted tenants, uh, many respond in Matthew 21 saying, just those dirty wretches. How awful they are. Meanwhile, the priests recognize this story is symbolic of Israel. It arises out of Isaiah chapter 5. And that Jesus is suggesting that they are the dirty wretches. Those who recognize this and that Jesus says God is going to destroy you and take away your vineyard and give it to others, they, they respond, no way, no way, that is not going to happen. Think about it, isn't this just exactly how we behave most of the time? When we hear about injustice, you know, we want those perpetrators punished profusely. When we hear something that is unjust, punish them. But when it comes to exposing our own injustices, our own iniquities, and we're under the spotlight, uh, we say, no way, no way, we want mercy. So the, our sinful nature is just so duplicious in this way. Uh, we, we, we are such hypocrites. When, when our neighbor across the street does something we don't like, and, and we think to ourselves, you know, boy, I bet they're not good church going folks like us Uh, you know we aren't even looking at ourselves we aren't even understanding the mercy and grace that we've been shown by God sinful man does not assess very well we we just don't do a good job of that the blind spot that we suffer is is a double standard it's it's known as hypocrisy Jesus spoke against hypocrisy Uh, uh Matthew chapter 7 Jesus hated hypocrisy as God hates hypocrisy so so just, just tuck that in your front pocket. all right? Hypocrisy. Write that down, tuck that in there and just hold on to that till a little bit later. We're going to come back to that. God had treated the people of Israel so good, so good. He, he, sent, he set them up in a land flowing with milk and honey. He placed a hedge, a divine hedge of protection around them to protect them. He dug them a wine press. It means he equipped them to flourish. Uh, it, it was a perfect setup that God had left the people of Israel. You know, it would be like a, a farmer today, a successful farmer who um, grew older, was ready to retire, had done well, and then decides to rent out his, his entire operation to, to one beneficiary. To give them the benefits of it. You know, he could say the equipment is all in the yard. It is there. It is paid for for you to use. I've got a machine shed fully equipped with tools. Just use it. Um, The grain bins, they're already built. Bring in the harvest. The land in every direction from here is yours to use. Uh, In fact, the farmhouse is sitting there. Please live in it. My wife just... uh, just remodeled everything. It looks great. Just use our house. We're moving into the city. We're retiring. You know, we bought a little town home, and uh, we're just going to settle down. We don't need this stuff anymore. We don't need this anymore. Uh, I'm going to provide it to you, so you just give me back a modest share, all right? A couple times a year, give me a modest share so I can afford to pay my taxes, maybe spend a couple weeks in the wintertime down in Sarasota, Right? That's what what the retired farmer wants to do. So he rents out his vineyard. But time after time, when the rent comes due, imagine the sharecropper disrespecting him. All the owner asks is a a little fruit from the land, a little something in return a couple times a year, But that tenant keeps on sending back word to that old retired farmer and his wife who had worked so hard to set him up so nice, replying, you know, I ain't got nothing for you. I got nothing in return for you. You know, should that make us a little mad? It it ought to infuriate us, right? Uh, Folks, that happens. That happens in real life. Benefactors whose estates were, were just Run into the ground by, by the very persons they entrusted it, it, it to. And, and we think to ourselves, well, what wretches, what wretches they are, uh, makes us furious. Folks, these priests and these scribes and, and these elders, they're little rascals. That's what they are. They're rascals, aren't they? Go ahead and tuck that in your pocket, too, right alongside hypocrisy. Rascals. God had sent them prophet after prophet uh, to not only warn Israel, but to enrich their nation with God's commands, with His law, with His holy word. Gave them the Ten Commandments. You know, that, that way they could maintain a healthy and a safe society. Thou shalt not murder... Uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. You shall not uh, not steal. You know, all of these wonderful commands that, that allow a, a society to thrive. Have no idols or graven images. God had given them all of this. Not only the land, but, but all of his wonderful word and commands to live by. So what a, what a blessing to enjoy a, a, a social and financial stability in a culture. God offered that to them. As the prophets declared, you know, God had supplied them with all of this, but as Mark 12, verse 2, another account of the same occasion, as Mark, Mark says, at the harvest time he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce. They took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed, Again he sent another slave, and they wounded him in the head, treated him shamefully, and he sent yet another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. Folks, this is how Israel treated God's prophets, his messengers. According to an ancient book called the Talmud, that's an ancient record that that describes a lot of the Jewish history and customs, according to that, the prophet Isaiah, yeah, yeah, who first wrote that first parable of the vineyard, at the command of King Manasseh, Jewish tradition, tradition says that they sawed him in half. All right? that, that is very plausible, because when we look at Hebrews chapter 11, we are told there that at least one of God's men, at least one of them, we aren't given the exact name, but at least one of them were sawn in half. So it's very likely that that Talmud accurately recorded that that Isaiah the prophet was sawed in half for the word of God that he gave to them. After after knowing all of this, now, right? After after knowing all of this, do you really think they're going to treat his son any better? You know, God knows that they won't. He he knows they won't. Uh, As we've studied before, We can look at Revelation 13, uh, where it assures us that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. This was God's plan from the beginning of creation, is that uh, when creation and man falls into sin, when there is disobedience that He was going to send His Son to redeem them, that was His plan from the beginning. So God God here in the parable is not suggesting through Jesus, uh, God himself, uh, that he's surprised, that he is caught off guard by the behavior of Israel. Uh, God knows man's heart. He knows Israel. He knows the future. This parable simply serves as a literary device for us. uh, and And here it is dripping with sarcasm. What shall I do? I will send my beloved son perhaps they will respect him you know my only beloved son the one and only folks this this part of the parable just embellishes embellishes beyond exaggeration how much god has done for his people he's not only provided every type of physical and material protection and blessing Uh, he's not merely enriched them with the prophets and his words so that they would have a a safe and healthy society he has now gone far beyond far beyond as a loving god to send them even his own precious son his his own son the holy son of god a divine manifestation of the word of god Human flesh, God and human flesh sent to dwell with sinful man. You know, Jesus was a living testimony. A living testimony of God's compassion and goodness that he showed upon Israel. You know, Jesus, Jesus here, think about it, he is standing directly before them. Directly in front of these folks. Uh, look now, God would say, look now what I have provided you. Standing right in front of you, my very own son. You know, you would think think that a nation such as Israel that had a blessing such as that, you would think that they would treat Jesus pretty well, right? If there was any innate goodness, any innate goodness at all in the human will, if there were any spark of light, Uh, of love of God and fallen man that could itself respond to the divine revelation of God through his own will, it would be coming face to face with the very Son of God himself, if that were possible. Not a chance. Not a chance. Talk about the total depravity of the human will here. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one, There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Together they have become useless. Uh, There is none who does good. There is not even one, says the word of God. It's not just John Newton, the slave ship, Captain. It's every single one of us. Humanity is, is totally corrupt and incapable of reaching out to God, even when he's standing right in their midst. You know, a picture of man's morality of our morality, our goodness is given in verse 14. It says, when the vine growers saw him, this is now looking directly at Jesus in the face, they reasoned with one another saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Think about that for a second. They they said, let's kill him. Let's kill him so the inheritance will be ours. What is that? You know, you know, I don't even understand what they're thinking. They, their inheritance is the vineyard, the land, the blessing. What are these vineyard keepers, what, what are they thinking? When they when they suggest through their violence, it's going to lead to their gaining the inheritance. Doesn't, it doesn't seem to make sense. It's... it's, it's inexplicably strange to come to that conclusion after their behavior. And I didn't read anywhere. I couldn't find anywhere that I thought really gave a good explanation for their rationale of thinking. What what are they possibly thinking? I'm going to share with you what I think they're thinking. And you can decide whether you agree. I think that Jesus is revealing in this parable that their rationale is that their lives would be better off without God. Be better off without Him there. In fact, we'll gladly kill Him off. All right? We'll kill God off, and then we can live as if God doesn't exist. Folks, this is how insane humans are. You want a perfect case study of this. And man doesn't change a whole lot over the centuries. Not at all, actually. We want to look at ancient Israel and and uh, those even before Israel and, and after Israel, all of us, mankind hasn't changed. We're as sinful and wretched as we ever were from the beginning. I'm going to tell you what I think they were thinking. You want a perfect case study of this? Observe America, all right? Think about America. We have removed God from our school programs. Good idea? Not a good idea. We, we want to cover the cross or take down the cross out of memorials and, and out of uh, um, grave sites and, and other places. We want to take that either take that away or throw a sheet over it to cover it up. We say to ourselves, you know, we don't need the wisdom of God. We don't, we don't even want His commandments displayed in the marketplace. You know, remove them from the city square. Get the jackhammer out. We, we just don't want to have to look at that stuff. Uh, we, we want to live how we want to live. We need to remove God from our midst. You know, it, it, those, those commandments, they say, do not commit adultery, don't defile the marriage bed. Oh, we won't defile the marriage bed. We'll completely dismantle marriage. That's what our culture is doing. Do not murder. You know we, We've adjusted that. Do not murder unless we perceive that that little one is going to be a little inconvenient for us. So then we, we go ahead and we murder it. That's what the culture is doing. And through Jesus' parable, Israel reflects in just the most graphic sense. How sinful, unregenerate man has always wanted to live. This is how man has always wanted to live. As if God does not exist. So we'll kill him. We'll kill him. In two more days, they're going to do that. They're going to savor the opportunity to kill the Son of God. um, Divine flesh walking amongst them. They're, they're, They're going to savor it. They want him dead. And when Jesus warns Israel that God is going to remove their blessing from them and give the vineyard to others, uh, that would be through the the church and the Gentiles. When when they heard that, they said, Nah, nah, ain't never going to happen. No way, they tell Jesus. But then Jesus looks straight at them and says this, What then is it that is written, The stone which the builders rejected... This became the chief cornerstone. You know that is a quote from our scripture reading earlier in Psalm 118. It's a, it's a psalm of salvation. Saying, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. You know, that, that, that psalm. It teaches how God has provided salvation through the cornerstone that the builders rejected. You know, I, Israel thought that they could build without the cornerstone. Yeah, we can build without Him. We, we can go on just fine. We don't need God. Folks, nobody can do that. You cannot build without God. As you probably learned in previous studies over, over the years, the cornerstone was the most important stone of a building project. Incredibly important. It was, it was a, a large, perfectly cut stone by which you would set the corner of a building. You, you, would, you would set it for direction, for elevation, and for orientation, alright? You have direction, elevation, and orientation. The first stone has to be perfectly plumb because the entire rest of the building is, is going to be oriented to it, you know, this isn't it, this isn't just so that the that the walls of the stone building would be at a ninety degree angle. It's not just for that. That that is essential in stone building because if you're going to set a heavy roof on uh, on on stone walls, the, the the best design to do that with with big heavy buildings is a rectangle. That's why you find most of the, the huge buildings in the ancient world, the temples, no matter where they're built, most of them are rectangular. That, that is what they had, stone for building products. The cornerstone, however, also dictates, dictates floor level, the level of the floor. Um, think, you know, if you're going to erect a, uh, a stone wall, think about that for a second, a big, thick, heavy stone wall. Do you dare erect it sitting at all like that, with all of that weight? No, 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 it, it's going to all crumb crumbling down. So the, the, the cornerstone was the first one through which you oriented the whole rest of the building. Incredibly important. The Apostle Peter told Annas and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, they were, they were of the high priestly order. He told them shortly after the day of Pentecost, you can find this in Acts chapter 4.11, Let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel, to all of the people of Israel, that at the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, he is the stone which was rejected by you, he's is telling Israel, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And he says this And there is salvation in no one else. Uh, there is no other name under heaven that has be- been given among men by which we must be saved. He's the only cornerstone. There is no other stone. Again, Psalm 118 tells us this cornerstone is the one that supplies salvation. He is the gate to salvation. You can't build without Him. It is impossible. The cornerstone must be established and in place first. Everything else that surrounds it has to be plumb and level with Him. Or your house is going to fall. No doubt about it. For there is salvation in no one else. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the early church, the true early church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they embraced Christ when Israel didn't want Him. Okay? Take other religions, for example. Islam says declares actually that that God is not Trinity and He has no Son. Okay? No cornerstone there. Hinduism, Buddhism, Spiritism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, all the others, they deny Jesus as the chief and only cornerstone. Folks, they're all, they're all houses built of cards. They're, they're going to fall when the rock falls. Um, the, the fact that these reject the cornerstone, and when the fall of judgment comes, when the stone drops... It shouldn't really surprise us that other world religions don't, don't see him as the cornerstone, alright? However, much of what claims to sit under the auspices of Christianity, claims to be Christian, also denies that Christ alone is cornerstone. You know, if, you, if you'd like a simple litmus test, I'm not going to go deep into this, but if you'd like a simple litmus test as to whether a church is founded on the rock, the rock being Jesus. You don't have to become confrontational at all about it. All you've got to do is just ask some simple questions. Ask the pastor, ask the priest, this, just cordially ask this. Uh, whatever your church is, what happens to Muslims? What happens to Buddhists? I'd, I'd like to know what happens to Buddhists and Muslims, or even Jews, who do not trust and confess that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world inquire with that question, and, and if you get any of the following responses from religious leadership, a response that says, well we aren 't sure we, we don 't really know, nobody really knows you know if you've behaved good, if they 've behaved good, you know they 'll be fine in the end they 'll go to heaven just like the rest of us, for Jesus died for their sins too if you, if you get any other response other than Christ alone, uh, faith alone in Christ alone, the cornerstone, any other response besides that, don't argue with them. Don't try and argue with them. You don't have to. You aren't going to get anywhere. You know. Rather, you'd be better to run, and I, I mean it, because they don't know Christ. If they don't know He is the cornerstone, by arguing with them, you're probably only going to be considered, you know, an intolerant, narrow-minded bigot. If you start to, to discuss that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, nobody comes to the Father but through me. You know, there, there, is a, there is a massive movement across not only America but the world, but a massive movement towards ecumenism. And what that means is bringing all denominations and religions into harmony, bringing everybody into harmony so that we can set aside our distinctives, achieving. Uh, peace and goodwill on earth that that is the goal of, of of secular society let's just set our distinctives aside and we can all get along just well um for true christians for those who genuinely know christ as a cornerstone uh there's only one thing standing in the way of that and it's the lone cornerstone christ alone we don't set him aside we don't set him aside ever um The problem is, once you remove the stone, once you take him out, the Jews tried this, once you remove the stone, you're no longer a Christian, no matter what you call yourself. And and sure, unbelievers will trip over him. He is a stumbling block to many. Uh, upon, Upon him they fall. They fall on this stone. Others will cast themselves against this rock, in opposition against this rock. Scripture says they are dashed to pieces. For others, the rock will fall on them in a form of judgment. They are scattered like dust, the scripture tells us. Salvation stands and falls on Him. It rests on Him. He who believes in the Son hath life. He who hath not the Son has not life. And the wrath of God abides on Him. That's John 3.36. You've got to have the Son. You've got to have the stone. There, there, there is no other way to be saved except in Christ alone. You know, there's, there's just two things. I think that pretty much explains the passage in the parable. But there are two things as we depart. Just two things. Pull, pull that little list out of your pocket that we just stuck in there. Pull that out. Should have hypocrisy and rascal written on it. Let's look at that real briefly. The double standard. The double standard. Do you really believe that the unjust are always everybody else? That it's always somebody else's the problem? You know, the the Jews, they were no worse than any of the rest of us. They they weren't worse than us. You know, poor theology has has often resulted in persecution of the Jews for what they did. Uh, it, it was those Jews, those those awful Jews, those those rascals. It was their fault. Um, but being totally depraved as all men are, all they did was lash out against God's righteousness like anyone else who wants God dead. For anyone else who wants to remove God from our schools and from the public squares. For anyone else who goes along with that idea, well, we can just set all this stuff aside and have a perfectly healthy society. That is impossible without the cornerstone. We would have done the same thing. As the Jews had done. I assure you, as unregenerate uh, persons who weren't Christian, if a man named Jesus walked into a shop, or a bar, or a nightclub, or a restaurant, or even a local church today, many of them anyhow, and began confronting the sexual immorality the adultery, the perversions of sex that we see. Uh, This man named Jesus started confronting drunkenness as sin and abortion as murder, which it is. People would get really upset. How dare you, they would say. And I assure you, as Jesus would declare, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. I'm the, I'm the only doorway and the cornerstone. Folks, those who are falsely Christian, they, they would quickly start yelling, How dare you? Who do you think you are? How, how intolerant! In fact, they would join in together and say, Let's crucify Him. Let's crucify Him. And before you and I were born again of the Holy Spirit, we would have joined in. For we are no better. It is not just the Jews let's Let's stop being hypocrites. All of us need Jesus Christ as our Savior. He alone is cornerstone. Secondly, those wretched little rascals, right? those wretches, those rascal sharecroppers who were, who were given all of those blessings. Uh, Israel's not the only people of God, by the way, who, who had been given material and physical blessing, protection from her enemies. You know, the holy word of God and the revelation that comes through his son. Israel isn't the only one who got that revelation. How about the Holy Spirit? Who's been given the Holy Spirit? Not only the gospel and Christ alone, we've been given the Holy Spirit. His church, Christ's church, has been enriched far more than even ancient Israel. We've been given the full revelation of the scriptures and of Jesus Christ. And all the vineyard owner asks, as we depart today, all the vineyard owner asks in response for his costly investment in our salvation, is a little good fruit in return. A little something for the effort in return for what God has done for us. you follow me? He wants us to serve him. He wants us to bear Good fruit that glorifies the holy name of Christ. Uh, let's not make the same mistake as Israel. You know, God has, had, has already given us everything. Folks, let's bear some fruit. A hymn writer, as I close, about 500 years ago, his name was Martin. And he put it this way. God's word above all earthly powers no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours, Christ who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Glory be to God. I'm going to let Gerald come up here and lead a song. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Have a